Warning, this episode contains strong language that could be offensive to young or sensitive listeners. From WOSU Public Media, this is The Power Grab, how dark money and dirty politics led to the biggest bribery scandal in Ohio history. I'm your host, Renee Fox. In our last episode, we learned how commonly used dark money tools aided the House Bill 6 scandal. Donors give to nonprofit 501c4s because they're allowed to remain secret, no matter how much they give. 501c4s are classified as social welfare organizations in the tax code. They're supposed to be used for the public good, with no more than half the funds going toward political activity. But with a lack of transparency and no fail-safes against abuse, many argue C4s undermine the greater good. They're just tools to make it harder to know who is influencing elections and lawmakers. Prosecutors tracked down transfers made by First Energy to these dark money groups as the funds migrated to support the HB6 conspiracy. But that $60 million First Energy doled out to elect householder and to pass HB6 and stop it from being rolled back wasn't the only cash that traded hands. And politicians in the state house weren't the only state officials for sale. Episode 5, Market Manipulation. The power grab has focused on several key players so far, Larry Householder and Matt Borges, who were found guilty and sentenced to prison. And there's Neil Clark, who died by suicide after pleading not guilty to the charges against him before the 2023 trial in Cincinnati. But there are more angles, and bribes, to the story. In order to connect the dots, we're gonna have to explore the exciting world of utility regulation. Okay, maybe exciting is too strong a word, but it is important to understand how this complicated system laid the groundwork for the HB6 scandal. And when federal prosecutors needed to explain things to the jury, they brought in Professor Noah Dormady. He researches energy policy at Ohio State University. I tried to help the jury understand the economic incentives of why they would want that rider through HB6. He'll give us a crash course in the market forces that led to HB6. But before we move into how the monopolized utility market is manipulated, let's take a look at the role a top state regulator played in the HB6 scandal. Just after Mike DeWine was elected governor for the first time in November 2018, he was tasked with picking a new chairman for the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. So what's a Public Utilities Commission? The commission is made up of five members with one designated as chairman. They're nominated by the governor and confirmed by the state senate. That's after a nominating council recommends four candidates. The commission is tasked with regulating the public utilities in the state. They consider requests from utility companies, weighing them against the research and recommendations made by their staff, 
feedback from consumer groups, and other organizations with a stake in the outcome. When utility companies like First Energy want to negotiate rule changes or increase what they charge customers, they go to the commission. It's important to note there are three elements to energy production and delivery in the United States. First, there's generation, the power created in plants across the country. Then transmission, sending that electricity across energy grids on power lines. Then distribution, distribution companies take power from the transmission lines and deliver it to your home or business. When transmission and generation companies pushed their prices up, though their costs were going down, the federal government started the process in the 90s to move them to a system where market forces dictated prices. That's called deregulation. One of the things I think that's important for people to know is that generation is deregulated and overseen by the federal government. Transmission is deregulated and overseen by the federal government, but distribution, because you can only have one company, a monopoly provider of those power lines and those wires in your backyard, remains regulated. And it's regulated at the state level by the PUCO, the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, here in Ohio. Public utilities are unique businesses. They're responsible for delivering one of the fundamental necessities to modern living, power, for heat and electricity. But they're still for-profit businesses with shareholders operating in a market with plenty of uncertainty and risk. To give the company and the consumers some stability, the utility distributors are allowed to act as monopolies in certain geographic areas. Dormady said monopolies are somewhat necessary in the energy distribution industry, even if other parts of the market are open you're still going to need one monopoly company that owns those power lines in your backyard. Imagine if we had 30 competing companies with 30 sets of power lines in our backyard, what that would look like. It would be expensive. It would be degrading to the environment. It would be a disaster. Uh, so we still can't get away from that one aspect. Here's comedian John Oliver to explain how the monopoly system was first devised in a segment on HBO's Last Week Tonight. But utilities operating as natural monopolies dates back to the fact that around the start of the 20th century, we needed to build a nationwide power grid from scratch. And that obviously required a huge investment. Companies were only incentivized to do that with a guarantee that they'd be able to operate in a non-competitive environment. And at the time, that made sense. But those monopolies persist to this day, and mostly as for-profit investor-owned companies. The PUCO is there to keep the company with the monopoly from wielding too much power over its captive consumer base. But utility companies have successfully lobbied to structure the market in Ohio in a way that works for them. They've won a steady rollback of consumer protections in exchange for increased corporate profits and decreased oversight. The public utility commissioners are supposed to be the referees for the tug of war between the desires of utility companies and energy consumers. So how do they make those choices? Decisions are made after a process similar to a legal proceeding. There's a set of rules and procedures where each side makes its argument and the staff conducts research. The decisions often rely on mediation, on a give and take, like a union might negotiate a labor contract. But consumers are at a disadvantage because they're always on the defense. 
Every request from a utility company has the potential to bump up costs for consumers, even if the other side negotiates to keep that increase lower than the original request. Other times, agreements aren't reached. Then the commission has to make decisions based on state and federal laws. They weigh each side's argument and the staff's recommendation based on their interpretation of the facts. But the catch is, commissioners don't have to follow those recommendations. So if regulators are in the pockets of utility companies or even just biased toward them because they have prior career connections in the industry, they can make calls that lean in the industry's favor. Favorable rulings from the commission are combined with favorable laws, fought for with successful lobbying, magnifying the industry's influence. Over time, the conditions help the businesses reduce their risk and send profits to shareholders, while costs for consumers creep up. Big changes could be coming to your electric bill later this spring. Many First Energy customers will see a dramatic increase. We saw a rate increase, prices doubling. This was back in June. I'm sure viewers want to know why this is happening again. The utility told customers that increasing demand and higher supply costs means they have to pass on some of those costs to customers. So DeWine's selection for the person to chair the PUCO would set the tone for how utility companies would be received during his administration. He landed on Sam Randazzo. Randazzo had worked as a lobbyist, a consultant, and a lawyer in the energy industry. He came highly recommended from the nominating council, a council he'd recently finished serving on. Environmental groups disliked his career of opposition to renewable energy and energy efficiency standards. Others were against Randazzo because of the work he'd done for utility companies. Some thought it was strange he was selected by a nominating council that he'd served on. But Randazzo didn't disclose some of his deepest utility connections in public documents when he sought the job as chairman. DeWine said Randazzo's utility connections weren't being kept secret— He said they were common knowledge. He defended his choice and said Randazzo was retired. Everyone knew he'd work for First Energy. That was not a a question. Uh, Everyone also knew he had worked for a lot of different companies. Uh, He'd worked both sides of it. He'd worked for for the utilities. He's worked for the consumers. Democratic State Rep Casey Weinstein said Randazzo's first energy connections were not common knowledge. We had some suspicions <laughs> and uh, some idea that Randazzo had a connection to First Energy, but we, we simply couldn't pin him down on that. And when questioned about these connections by Weinstein, Randazzo said he was old school and wouldn't talk about past clients. But soon, a lot more information about Randazzo's involvement and close ties to the utility industry would come out. FBI agents carried boxes out of the home of Public Utilities Commission Chair Sam Randazzo. An FBI spokesman says the raid was related to a sealed federal search warrant, and there were no arrests and none expected. While it's unclear why Randazzo's home was searched, the PUCO is now auditing First Energy, the electric utility thought to be at the center of a $61 million bribery scheme to pass a nuclear bailout law that federal prosecutors say involved Republican former House Speaker Larry Householder. And- Turns out First Energy paid Randazzo $22 million in the 10 years before he became chairman. First Energy admitted to the federal government a year after Householder was indicted 
that four million of that was a bribe, a bribe that Randazzo collected just before he became chairman. Randazzo hasn't been charged with a crime, and he denies any wrongdoing. He contends the payment was part of his consulting agreement with the company. But with First Energy's lofty goals, the company needed influence in multiple offices. And Randazzo sure seemed to be on the team. He even helped write the language in HB6. And when HB6 passed, one of First Energy's former executives texted Randazzo an image. He photoshopped his face onto Mount Rushmore in Teddy Roosevelt's place. The other presidents, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, they were replaced by utility company executives. Text on the image stated, HB6, fuck anybody who ain't us. First Energy admits it pursued influence in the General Assembly and with the Public Utilities Commission. There's also evidence they had the ear of the state's executive branch. Householder's proxy during the HB6 scandal, Neil Clark, was secretly recorded talking about the cash First Energy gave DeWine. Clark said DeWine brought in $3 million from First Energy and dark money donations. This company, this company was not the one of the it, it, it wasn't a guarantee and so all that soft money was really necessary in the return. If that was tough to hear, Clark said DeWine took the money when he wasn't doing well in the polls, when he wasn't the sure victor in the governor race. Clark said DeWine needed that money from First Energy to win. News reports traced at least $1 million from First Energy to DeWine's campaign. DeWine won the election in November 2018, and he nominated Randazzo to chair the PUCO three months later, in February 2019. Later, meeting records and text messages exchanged between First Energy executives Chuck Jones and Mike Dowling were released. Those are the guys that were on Mount Rushmore with Randazzo. They showed DeWine had met with them a few times. The messages indicated there was some consensus that Randazzo should be chairman of the PUCO. The messages also insinuated Lieutenant Governor John Houston helped push HB6 on lawmakers. Houston and DeWine downplayed their involvement. They said they did support HB6, but for the right reasons. They genuinely believed it was a good idea to save the nuclear plants through subsidies. For a long time, um, you know, I've ad- advocated, Lieutenant Governor's advocated for a balanced energy policy energy in the state of, state of Ohio. Ohio. So we need to keep those plants going. Uh, those are significant jobs. My position on nuclear energy has nothing to do with any campaign contributions. Houston denies that he helped move the nuclear bailout forward among lawmakers, though First Energy executives did text about it. The investigation also revealed some other connections between First Energy's HB6 push and the DeWine administration. DeWine had a legislative director in 2019. He controlled a 501c4 that received millions from First Energy. And they funneled some of that money to Householders 501c4. Generation Now. 
Randazzo gave First Energy other favorable attention while he was chairman at the PUCO, sometimes going against staff recommendations. But to understand some of those decisions, we need to understand a little bit more about how utility prices are set by the Utilities Commission. There's a few things you need to know first, and things might get a bit more complicated. One of the ways Randazzo helped First Energy was eliminating a requirement that the company go through a rate case in 2024. These rate cases are introduced when a company wants to increase certain types of charges or because they promise to go through them during negotiations. During these cases, companies have to go through what basically amounts to a financial audit. It verifies that new consumer costs are reasonable and that the proposed company profits are within reason. Text messages show First Energy executives pushed Randazzo to get rid of the reviews because they hurt stock prices. The company admits in the deferred prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors that if the 2024 case moved forward, it would have resulted in a rebalancing that would have benefited consumers. That's why they asked Randazzo to get rid of it. You might think that these reviews are conducted every time a company wants to raise charges, but you'd be wrong. Over the decades, the energy industry has successfully lobbied to get the rules amended, to let them raise rates without opening the books. The company hasn't gone through a rate case since 2007, but they've tacked on extra costs to consumers without the high-level scrutiny of a rate case countless times. One of the ways they do that is asking the PUCO for something called a rider. Riders are extra charges added to utility bills outside the charges for the electricity or natural gas. They're proposed by utility companies and then negotiated during the PUCO's process, often without the scrutiny to ensure they're necessary and not covering losses in other areas. The different parties debate the request, but instead of holding strong to a position, they drop the adversarial tone and make concessions. What often ends up happening is that all the different interests or parties involved in these cases, environmental groups, manufacturing groups, small business groups, whomever, will engage in a process to settle the case. And in that process, oftentimes you'll see additional charges added that end up to uh, being, uh, I would say, detrimental to consumers' costs. Most of those extra expenses aren't obvious to customers. They're not always itemized on a bill. But riders were never supposed to be so common. They were supposed to be a temporary boost to utility companies after Ohio decided to change the way it regulates the utility market in the early 2000s. It was pitched as deregulation, a way to allow real market forces to dictate energy generation costs while still maintaining some price setting by organizations like the PUCO for distribution costs. The move was made on promises it would lead to savings for consumers. Here's Professor Dormady. In theory, uh, deregulation is supposed to take and shift risk from consumers onto the market participants. Deregulation is supposed to take pricing benefits, the efficiencies of a larger marketplace that spans across multiple states, a regional market, and take those efficiencies and pass those through to households and businesses. But true deregulation never happened in Ohio because utilities lobbied for and clawed back exceptions. 
It was supposed to end back in 2005, these riders. And these riders were really intended back at that time to ease us over the hump, to get us through the transition from a regulated market to a restructured or deregulated market. But instead of going away, utility companies got extension after extension. So they're still an integral part of how Ohioans are billed for energy. And in some ways, it's almost kind of like like an abuser who keeps promising you that they're gonna they're gonna stop hitting you, right? It's gonna they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna end, and this is gonna stop. I promise you, it'll stop by 2005. I promise you, it's gonna stop by 2008. I promise by 2010, but it never really stops. That means the benefits of cheaper energy aren't being passed on to the consumers. Those riders over time have um, have grown. Those riders have um, continued to populate, and when even though we've seen the price of electricity on the wholesale market decline, we've seen the price at the retail level increase over time. And we've seen a, a highly statistically significant and inverse relationship between the wholesale market and the retail market. When, when prices were favorable on the wholesale market, the theory of deregulation said, well, those benefits should flow to consumers. We didn't get those benefits as consumers. We got the opposite. We got a bunch of additional riders that added charges up to our bill, and that raised retail prices so that retail prices flowed in the opposite direction of wholesale prices. That means the utility companies get security, while consumers are left with the empty promises of a market that wasn't properly deregulated. If deregulation is doing what it should have done, we should see our prices move in the same direction as the wholesale market. There may be a lag for a few months or a couple of quarters here and there, but we should see a general trend over time that is consistent between the wholesale market and the retail market. But what we actually see is an inverse relationship that's highly statistically significant. The significance of that statistic means there's more than a 99% chance that Ohio's incomplete effort to deregulate the market actually caused cost increases for consumers. There are other ways energy deregulation was thwarted in Ohio. Dormady said Ohio's law ignored the need to make sure a company isn't generating the electricity it's distributing. Otherwise, there's an incentive to use the costs collected when energy is distributed to make up for any losses on the energy generation side of the business. He said the law failed to force the companies to actually separate. It didn't actually create functional separation, but it allowed those utility companies, companies like AEP, companies like First Energy, to essentially sell their generation units not to a third-party independent company, but sell them to a company that they owned. They essentially sold the power plants to themselves through corporate separation. Allowing the companies to just divide into subsidiaries instead of having true corporate separation incentivized companies like First Energy to recover losses in whatever way they could to keep the parent company solvent. And that's what led to HB6. First Energy lobbied to have their distribution customers take on the burden of making their power generation companies whole. 
To understand the scandal, Dormady said it's important to understand what was going on in the energy markets back when First Energy figured they could get their customers to subsidize their poorly performing nuclear power plants. It starts with Ohio's natural gas boom. It sits atop the newly discovered Utica Shale deposit, rich with oil and natural gas. But how the oil and natural gas is retrieved is controversial. It's known as fracking. At the start of the new millennium, an Ohio State University analysis found only 1% of natural gas was produced from shale formations in the United States. Once companies started tapping shale formations like the Utica Shale in Ohio, the product altered the energy landscape in the region. So by the time 2012 rolled around, about 40% of natural gas came from shale production. And what we essentially saw with uh, the shale boom in Ohio is we saw a dramatic new technology that increased our ability to access cheap natural gas. And what that did is that lowered the price of natural gas. With new sources for energy on the market, that made it cheaper to produce electricity. And that made it less profitable to sell electricity. Now, you can imagine if you were a company that owned, say, two nuclear power plants, like First Energy Solutions or later Energy Harbor, and you're sitting on a a fixed resource and the wholesale market price starts to decline precipitously, you can see how you would be tempted to want to find some other way to get another source of revenue because you could no longer compete in this new post-shale boom market. So essentially, you're, you're asking yourself, well, boy, what, what, uh, what reason would I have for wanting to seek an additional rider on customers' electric bills? And it's all because they weren't making as much money as they were before the shale boom. In the end, the first energy subsidiary that owned the power plants filed for bankruptcy. They sold off that subsidiary to a Texas company for $3.4 billion dollars. Catherine Terser with Common Cause Ohio said that's evidence the bailout wasn't even necessary for the plants in the first place. It was just a money grab to insulate themselves from not acting sooner on market conditions. So when we talk about the cost of corruption, just imagine that First Energy Solutions never actually needed their additional dollars. First Energy has faced several lawsuits from investors, arguing that their executives acted recklessly in their push to get HB6 in place. They contend bribing public officials caused damage to the company and hurt shareholders. After the deferred prosecution agreement was made public in 2021, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost filed a civil suit against Randazzo, and a host of others accused of or convicted of being involved in the conspiracy. If you do this in Ohio, it will ruin you. You will be caught and you're going to pay a price that is so high, there will be nothing left of your career. Yost accused Randazzo of moving money around out of fear his assets would be seized after First Energy said the company bribed him. It looks like some of the assets uh, that were liquidated, the money came into an account uh, and may have already uh, been transferred elsewhere. Yo said Randazzo transferred or sold several properties worth nearly $5 million. That court case is still unsettled. A court granted Yo's request to freeze $8 million of Randazzo's assets, nearly double the alleged bribe, 
and Randazzo appealed the decision. The case went to the Ohio Supreme Court, where attorneys for both sides argued their case in June. A decision hasn't been made yet. Randazzo's attorney, Roger Sugarman, argued that the state's deferred prosecution agreement with First Energy is an unproven allegation and nothing more than hearsay. He contends the $4.3 million payment was to end a consulting contract, not to bribe Randazzo. First Energy bought its way out of a criminal prosecution by agreeing to pay $230 million. And they made some other admissions. But if you look, when you read our brief and look at the record, um, there's no, every statement made against Mr. Randazzo in that case that was relied upon is hearsay. It's unsupported evidence. In, in, a, in federal case, which you pointed out, there, there is no proponent offered by First Energy who could substantiate any of the claims in that first, in the deferred prosecution agreement. In that agreement, First Energy agreed to pay the federal government $115 million in restitution and to put another $115 million toward a program that helps people in Ohio pay their utility bills. In return, the government held off on charging First Energy with wire fraud and asked for details of the bribes. State Attorney Charles Miller retorted that there is plenty of evidence that a hold on his assets is necessary. And there were plenty of badges of fraud here. Um, You know, we have a scenario where he was raided by the FBI, uh, First Energy, a publicly traded public utility, uh, admitted in federal court in a deferred prosecution agreement to paying him a $4.3 million bribe. We have the fact that after that, um, you know, so he, he's, on, you know, he's potentially on the hook uh, to us and, you know, uh, and to others. Uh, and just on us alone, on this claim, it's trouble damages. Um, you know, so he's insolvent at this point. And what does he do? He gives away a house to his son. He liquidates a bunch of other properties and takes the proceeds. You know, these aren't mortgage properties, so he's actually receiving the proceeds, puts them in a brokerage account. There's all evidence here that's in place that it seems like he is going to move funds. Miller said the state is a victim of criminal conduct and should be able to recover up to three times the alleged bribe. Somebody receives these criminal proceeds, bribe money, as an employee of the state um, to take action that benefited First Energy for billions of dollars. And he just wants to be able to take that money, run off uh, with it, spend it down, use it, move it around, give things to his his children so that he's judgment-proof at the end of the day. And that has to be stopped. It's no surprise, but there are other ways to tweak regulations to bolster corporate profits. And Randazzo had a hand in securing yet another way to siphon more profit from the public. The state has a formula they use to calculate whether or not companies like First Energy are taking significantly excessive earnings from their customers. Randazzo helped meddle with it, turning it more favorable for the utility company. They got the change into the 2019 state budget. Some of the PUCO decisions Randazzo oversaw were overturned, but not all of them. First Energy's 2024 rate case was reinstated in the agreement the company signed with prosecutors. But the company is trying to get more money from customers now. Even after the scandal and their admissions of bribery, they're still asking for a billion dollars in new charges just before they have to open their books up to scrutiny in 2024.
next week on The Power Grab, The Aftermath. During a seven-week trial, prosecutors offered us an inside look at the ways corporate influence shapes political and bureaucratic decisions in Ohio. What does that corruption cost? And has it led to any meaningful reform? Karen Kassler with the State House News Bureau. In the sentencing hearing for Larry Householder, the prosecution actually brought that up, that yeah, the nuclear power plant subsidies from House Bill 6 are gone, but the rest of House Bill 6 remains and may never be repealed. And so the damage that Larry Householder did in passing House Bill 6 is still there and and may never be corrected. The Power Grab is a production of WOSU Public Media and part of the NPR Network. It's written and hosted by me, Renee Fox. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis. Audio engineering by Dalton Jones. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.